music, news, interviews, live events, and more. Welcome to the Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. Hey, welcome to the Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. I'm here with uh, a true legend and a guy, big influence on me with his band, the Sex Pistols, originally. And I love the band he did right after, Rich Kids. He's been doing great bands ever since, and he's here with us today. It's Glenn Matlock. Glenn, welcome to the show. Good to see you, man. Great to have you on. You know, I was so happy to see that you were here for the CBGB's Festival, Um, and when you got up and played with Duff McKagan's Loaded and did Stooges, I Want to Be Your Dog, and I tweeted about it. A lot of people were like, man, I wish I was there today, and I was really excited to see you. Yeah, it was supposed to. I mean, you know, I've never played in Times Square before, and to be playing with Duff was, was cool, and his band's great, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Plus, they never really let concerts go on in Times Square unless it's like a Broadway musical line, like yeah, to promote well, Broadway. Perhaps, perhaps. <laughs> it was the first time we anything like that's been yeah, done it was here. A punk on Broadway, yeah. It was very cool. So, Glenn, let's talk. I know it was too blinking hot. Yeah, it was. It was like 101 degrees. Yeah. My sunblock on my bald head was dripping into my but eyes it and burning was a it. Good excuse for Jimmy from Trash and Bullville to get his shirt off again. Yeah. So. And Jimmy always gets his shirt off at gigs. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I remember he was at the road recovery gig, and I think Iggy, well, like, was, didn't mean to, but like went over and hit his leg and actually kicked him in the stomach. And Jimmy's, he didn't even feel it. He was cool, you know. He just, but uh, good guy, absolutely. Yeah. Glenn, let's talk about your background. Now, you were born in like West London, and did you grow up there as well? Did you stay in London all your life? Yeah, I mean, I still live in London now. Although I think maybe it's time for a change. But West London is pretty cool, you know. I was born in the mid fifties and very working class neighbourhood just at the top of Portobello Road which is kind of like the hip place now and, and was back then you know I remember being just prior to punk being in the pub at lunchtime and there was like Mick Jones and uh, Tony James and me and I think Steve and Paul all hanging out at Lemmy yeah or in, before anybody had really done anything you know it was, so it was that kind of place so i lived not that far from there but it was it was it was cool it was a little two up two down houses and it was a big west indian immigrant community one of the first ones in london and in the summer everybody had their windows open and it'd be all blue beat you know which was like a precursor to to reggae blasting out the windows and in fact i used to play football in the street with one of the guys from the scatholites Really? Yeah, wow. it was great. My mate Denzel L.A. and I went to infant school with, his mum and dad split up and they, she took in lodgers and it was one of the guys from the Scatlight. Wow, that's an amazing yeah, story. So I think kinda, there's a bit of a history to the thing. So what music were you listening to? I mean, was your first uh, exposure to that, like BBC One or Radio Luxembourg, Radio London? Well, you we, when I was a lad, we didn't have a national radio station that played pop music. There was only two shows you could listen to on the BBC. We had this thing called the Light Programme, which was like light pops music, but not pop music, like kind of popular things from shows and things. And they had a show on Saturday mornings called Brian Matthews Show that played maybe the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or the, the Kinks or something, interspersed with with clips from comedy shows, you know, like Hancock's After. And it's kind of weird. And then on a Sunday, there was this program called Pick of the Pops which played the top 40 Jimmy Savile's thing and I always thought as a kid it's kind of weird because um, how does anybody know what to buy to make the top 40 you know this is when I'm 10 years old if they haven't heard it and then things started springing up these pirate radio ships yeah just outside British territory what was um, Caroline Radio London Radio Luxembourg wasn't a pirate radio station but it was broadcast from Luxembourg and you could hear it there yeah but that coincided with the kinks and the small faces and the who and the yardbirds and the idle race 
Dave Clark 5 coming through. It was a really exciting time. And it was also the time when transistor radios first came out in England. So all the kids would have a transistor radio under the bed covers at night, you know, tuning into these stations. It was, it was really exciting. And that's kind of what influenced me more than anything else. That's you know, And I never kind of wanted to go back and be just like the old days. But, you know, that real slice of three minute three and a half minute song it's kind of deeply ingrained in what I do I it's amazing I think you know and I mean a lot of people may not realize like you said it wasn't until about 67 when I think they played the moves Flower in the Rain Flowers well, in the I Rain mean, I remember that that, yeah. was, that was the first because they banned the radio things and they realized that to replace it with something and then they started up this thing called Radio 1 and the first record on it was Flowers and Flowers in the Rain yeah by, by the, the move, move by the move and I actually heard it when it so you were listening to that. That's a that's, it, yeah. that's a historic Clint moment. Blackburn, you know, it's the first thing you played. Uh, it's amazing if you saw that movie Pirate Radio with Philip Seymour Hoffman and those guys. It kind of yeah, that's kind of kind of makes light of it a little bit, but it's a fun kind of thing. But I suppose it was a fun time for those guys. It's almost shocking to me too, Glenn, that you know you think about how influential British music was, you know, from sixty three, four, five, six, and then sixty seven. But all that time, no national station playing those records yeah. that were being played yeah, every minute exactly. of the day on American but AM we, stations. But then we had a couple of really cool TV shows. There was top of the pop started up about them. But there was also this really great show called uh, Ready, Steady, Go. Yeah, with Kathy McGowan. Kathy McGowan. Dusty Springfield was always on it. And I I read this thing recently. I saw something on the telly about how, you know, she came to the States and got hip to all the Tamla stuff. And it was because of her that they would have, like, Smokey Robinson and, and, you know... uh, Four tops and temps. It was her that said, suggested, come and have these... And they were really big in England. Yeah. Because of that, you know. That's amazing. And they played live. Which was great, yeah, incredible. Those, those, the footage of those old shows of the old Top of the Pops, and the uh, the ones you can get actually. Most of the seventies ones are available, but they obviously they they, well, they, tri- wiped, they wiped they wiped all the sixties ones, yeah. which are crazy. I have one that I has Davy Jones as the host in the sixties, but it does it must have been a like a, a weird feed without the audio because when he's talking in the host Jimmy Seville, there's no audio. But then when the bands play, you hear them. Must so it was kind of overdone. But Dave Clark from Dave Clark Five actually bought up a load of some of them that still existed and put them out again on videos but it's kind of funny because he put the Dave you know he recut them and he put the Dave Clark 5 in yeah but whenever they finish there's like a big shot of this big massive audience that yeah. weren't there <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's funny, funny yeah. that's amazing he was one of the smartest business guys because yeah, he, he owned the rights book. to all his yeah. uh, all his stuff mm. Still owns the rights to all those Dave Clark Five songs, which is incredible. So that's what you were listening to. Tell me when you first ended up picking up an instrument, Glenn. Was it how long was it before you formed the Pistols? Well, well, oh well, I, I had a guitar when I was about ten or twelve, but I didn't really learn it. I just got an acoustic guitar for Christmas, and I struggled with that. And then when I was at school, somebody was selling a bass guitar, and I got that. Although it turns out it wasn't a real bass guitar; it was a six-string guitar with... Four-poor strings on it. it. A nice purple stripe somebody painted on it. I learned that. And then I started working for Malcolm McLaren when I was about 16 in his shop. And Stephen Paul would come in and I overheard them talking one day that they had a band. They were always trying to get Malcolm involved. And Malcolm said, how's it going, boys? And Paul said, well, you know, I don't know, we've got this bass player and he never turns up. You know, he's not taking it seriously. And I overheard this and I said, well, I'm learning bass. And they went, oh, you know, and we got talking, and what's your favourite bands? I said, well, The Faces, which they were at the time. And I said, well, that's our favourite band as well. This is long before John was involved in it. Yeah. So I went and had a play with them. 
And in fact, I played a Faces song, which is about the only song I could play all the way through. Which which one? Three Button Hammy Down, which is quite a fancy part. Yeah. Like, so I did that, and they was impressed, and I was impressed. I, I played it without <laughs> mucking it up, and they said, "Okay, um, you know, you're in." They said, but one thing you can't use that bass. And I went, "Oh, it's like this Crocodile Dean one moment." They said, "That's not a bass." I said, "Well." What should I use then? And they pulled out this case from underneath Wally, who was the original guitarist, bed, because it was round his house. He said, this is a bass, and it was this brand spanking new Thunder Precision. I said, where did you get that from? They said, ask no questions, told no way. Was that the one they stole from uh, from Bowie? From the, uh... No, no, it was, it was something else. <laughs> <All right. laughs> I'm not going there on that, but anyway. Did you ever go into it in your book or no? Did it's, you it's, yeah, it's in there. Oh, you, so you won't say there. now? Who, who well, yeah, I don't, I don't, there were so many sources. That okay, I I know. <laughs> there was a story about how Steve Jones from the, you know your band would like wait till like the guys would leave and he'd actually stay inside the Hammersmithonian. Yeah, and, and steal the instruments. Well, I, I, I wasn't there, but it wasn't the instruments; it was the mic microphones which we used for recording the Spunk album on, which is. Well, Legendary. Dave demos for did Dave Goodman book. produce that? Was yeah. 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 Did Dave Goodman ended up producing it. We did it on his little Revox around our rehearsal studio and then went. And it, uh, they were the tapes that got us the, the record deal as, as well as the geeks. You know? Let's talk about uh, the first. So you were working at the at the sex shop there with Vivian Westwood. And, um, well, originally it was called Let It Rock. It was like a teddy boy shop. Oh, you know so what teddy boys are? Yeah, teddy boys are like the the, the, the rockers in Quadrophenia. It's basically a rockabilly. No, no, you know? before then. Yeah. They, they were kind of more drape coats. And it's a bit more like um, Kim Fowley's character in American oh. Graffiti. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's called Teddy Boys because it was like an Edwardian yeah. look. And it's short with so they would come in and buy that, and then when did he change it to the sex shop? Well, he kind of got fed up with them because lots of the Teds were a bit kind of conservative and reactionary, so and they would he wanted to move on from that. Yeah. But it was a good starting place, and oh, I don't know, 75, just as we were getting the name. So he called it Sex because he thought that would get a lot of attention. And there was a, this big sort of pink, Soft sculpture Rauschenberg kind of sign, which I helped make. There's some quite famous yeah. pictures of that. Yeah, those pictures of that are pretty and that's amazing. That's why we, we, we were called the Sex Pistols because we were the pistols from the sex shop. So, Sex Pistols. <laughs> it's great. It's a great story. Now, um, were you working that day in the shop? Uh, and were you, were you there with Paul and Steve? I'm sure you were when Johnny came in and auditioned. He sang yeah. the Alice Cooper song, I'm 18. Yeah. We, there was a jukebox in there, right? It was a really great. Balangri jukebox, and um, it, it was it had all this kind of old rock and roll stuff on it. And but it had on eighteen, and this is your body. On it, yeah, <laughs> yeah. When it's mainly kind of rockabilly and, and rock and roll, you know, Eddie Cochran and things like that. Yeah, bit small faces and the Stones. Have you seen your mother, baby? Stand it. Yeah, yeah, great one. Alice Cooper's eighteen. So, so I mean, John didn't just walk in. We'd sort of made. We were looking for a singer at the time. And Bernard Rhodes, who went on to manage the Clash, used to knock around with us. Yeah. And um, he said, "Look out for this guy called John." So we did, and we found John Lydon. And yeah. then he came back, and we met him, went for a drink, and he reopened the shop and came in. But when we decided to work with John Lydon, who Malcolm dubbed Johnny Rotten because his teeth were a bit yeah. green and horrible. Not yeah. much better than my ones, but there you go. <laughs> yeah. He was only 17 at the time. Um, <laughs> when Bernard saw the guy we got, he said, oh, not him. There's another John. <laughs> and the other John was Sid Vicious. Because oh. John had all these mates called John, and Joel Wobble was called John, and he had another mate called John, who they called Gray, and they all had to have nicknames because they were all called John. <laughs> all their names were John. That's yeah. amazing. So Sid Vicious almost ended up being the singer, but yeah. would not have been the same. It would have been. No, I mean, John's fan got this fantastic kind of Jonathan Swiftian kind of yeah. poetry side to him. Yeah, and, and just the, the snarl and the yeah. attitude you guys had yeah. with that, and it just matched so, so well. And I always wondered... 
when were you there when Malcolm or were you involved in asking Midjour if he would sing for the band Malcolm McLaren or was no that was up in Glasgow at the time this is yeah. prior to getting John in the band yeah and, I mean you know back then everybody but everybody had long hair and flares yeah so the very few people you know even your bank manager had long hair slightly long hair <laughs> yeah. and, and wide lapels and stuff and his mid so mid to 70s. see a kid with, with short hair was quite a statement. And they went up to Scotland because Malcolm was in the rag trade. They was trying to buy old clothes for his his shop. But Steve also had some equipment that they couldn't get rid of in London because it was warm. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and they I went into this, this shop in um, Glasgow. And it must have been a sight. I mean, Malcolm back then, Norwood and Leather Gear, you know, with curly red hair and Bernard Rhodes, who look, again looked like one of the guys out of American Graffiti who couldn't get laid, you know. Yeah. In Glasgow. <laughs> And they tried to sell the stuff. The guys didn't want to know anything about it. And Midge overheard them. And yeah. he collared them when they came outside and said, oh, I'll have that off you. Canny Scotsman. And yeah. Got a deal on this Marshall amp. But they swapped phone numbers. And now I called him back. I went down in London. And I said, you're in for doing this thing. And he said, well, thanks for asking, but I'm going to be doing this thing. And it looks like it's going to be big. Which was slick. You know, and they had a number one record. Yeah, they did. You know, it was, was that, was like that the Requiem song or was it something else? Well, they else? had two. Requiem and... Um, forever and ever I think yeah. Yeah. yeah it's funny because they, they were when you look back on it they, their outfits were American baseball uniforms yeah, which it, yeah. were like they wore baseball uniforms yeah. and it was in that period it was like kind of post glam post like you know exactly, Slade yeah. T-Rex yeah. Bowie and all this stuff because you see those footage on top of the pops and it's classic yeah you know, Mitch is a great singer though he's you know. got a great voice you know you know he's no Johnny Rotten but he's got a great voice yeah so all right, so let's talk about those early days. And Malcolm, of course, was very good at you know kind of working with the press, manipulating them. But you guys were a bunch of young teenagers. Well, we were young teenagers, but we kind of knew we didn't know what we wanted to do, but we knew what we didn't want to do. Yeah. And also, you got to remember, Malcolm's shop was at the wrong end of the King's Road. You know, King's Road was supposed to be trendy then. I don't know if it was, but there was another end to it, and his store was right a couple of doors down from a shop called Granny Takes a Trip, where you know, the Rolling Stones and the Faces and those kind of people got their dandy fashions kind of look. And, you know, the Stones are going in, and as far as we was concerned, they were multi-millionaires at the time. Yeah. There was another shop down the road called Alcacera where your Gary Glitters and all that got their gear from, and then it'd be Brian Ferry and Anthony Price swanking past that part of the thing. And Malcolm kind of thought they was all a bit idiots, right? So we did too, because Malcolm was almost like our older brother a little bit. So we didn't have nothing, but we kind of got from him this sort of arrogance that all these other people were past it somehow, even though they were doing really well. So yeah. it was a good starting place for a rock and roll band, you know. Yeah, because you guys were losing us and them. You were like, well, these kind of people are unobtainable at that time. You looked at it like, you know, you go to their shows and you're, they're like 500 miles away yeah. and they're they're living the high life. We're bringing it back to the streets kind of thing, which kind is what of, you yeah. were doing. Although we wouldn't mind a slice of that a little bit as well. Yeah, you? oh, who wouldn't? Yeah. You know what I mean? That's the whole, that's the conflict that anybody yeah, who's like, I think. take. Yeah, for sure. So tell me about the first, so you recorded those sessions with Dave Goodman that became the Spunk Sessions. Tell me what it was like at that period of time when he was going in. Like, obviously there was the A&M deal. Was it EMI well, this first? was afterwards. I mean, the whole thing, you know, my period of the band was kind of writing the songs, you know, which yeah. kind of ended up, as never mind the bollocks. We started gigging. And yeah. Lots of kind of happenstance things happened, which led to us getting a reputation. Malcolm was very kind of good I mean he had mates like you know his mates were the editor of the NME so yeah. instead of hassling to try and kind of get somebody to come down he could both say oh we've got this band come down you know and he would do because he respected Malcolm yeah why but 
So how long? When was the time that you actually landed up leaving the band? Where the where, you, where Malcolm would cause the you know kind of a tension between you and Johnny? Where, where, well, where that was, was kind of early '77, you know, just yeah. prior to the A and M deal. Yeah, and we'd already done the Bill Grundy show by then, which was this quite let's, famous TV show. Let's talk about the Bill Grundy show because it's legendary. You're there with the Bromley contingent, which was Susie the, of Susie and the Banshees was like one of the guys, girls who followed you around. Yeah, who else was in that? Were any other musicians later on? Was uh, Joe Wobble part of that? Or no, no? Uh, earlier on um, Billy. Idol was he was still Billy Idol was still yeah, part yeah of, he was before there, Generation no, X yeah before Generation X yeah um, and he would come it around was mainly the guys who went on Steve Severin who went on to to be the bass player in Susie's band and a couple of other guys who hung around yeah um, and they were our fans you know they, it was when we first started playing there was hardly anybody we didn't have any fans you know and yeah. the only fans were the people who hung in, in the shop but they was the most forward-looking outlandish people in London at the time. Yeah. You know, that that was the whole thing at Malcolm's Place. It was like, on a Saturday afternoon, the bars used to be shut in yeah. London. It's a silly little point, but it kind of added to what was going on. And people used to go down to King's Road, have a drink at lunchtime, and then spend a couple of hours there waiting... For the pubs to reopen? ...open at 5.30. <laughs> and that's when they would come in the shop. And... Um, it was like the more nutty kind of people. But it's, all those people ended up going to do something. You know, not only just people in bands, you know, fashion. Because Chrissy Hine was over there Chrissy hanging Hine out, you know, from the Pretenders, and she was like, you know, living there at the time. So everybody started bands. It's yeah. pretty, it's really yeah. cool that, that everybody kind of did the DIY thing at that point. So what what was a real catalyst for you leaving the band? I, you know, it's well, well, it's just I found that when John sort of lead singer syndrome really, he got, yeah, he, he changed when he started getting in the papers but maybe I did too as well And there, but there was a big difference between just being in the music press which we've been in I mean we was on the front page of this magazine called The Melody Maker which doesn't exist anymore but and it was, it was That Sounds one. Melody Maker and Enemy yeah. yeah and there was another one New, um, Record Mirror yeah. so yeah there used to be four weekly music papers come out every week yeah right but we've been on the front page of most of them where we did this gig at this place called The Nashville and there was a fight broke out in the crowd and then when you're in a band the worst thing is, is when a fight breaks out is not because it's dangerous. Nobody watches the band. They all want to watch the fight. So we was trying to break it up. This guy, Joe Stevens, took a photograph. Looked like we was fighting with the audience, but we weren't. We were trying to break it up. And it was the front page of the paper. That was fine. And we did that. But then we did this Bill Grundy show. Instead of being on the front page of the music press, we was on the front page of all the national papers. Because of the classic moment, you guys had had a few drinks and Steve Jones was calling them. It was, he you, swore his bloody head. He swore, swore on TV. And there's the great stories about how all the conservatives in England were, kicked their TVs in. They were so upset. So oh, it was on the front. I, I think one guy did. One guy did, right? But they sure blew it up like people were flipping out all over yeah, the country. But you could, then you got to put in context with what was going on in England at the time. The place was a mess. You know, everybody yeah. was on strike, and there's power cuts. When the miners were on strike, there was no. I mean, it was like almost like a third world country, and it seemed like there was no future. You know, which is where that kind of song. Which is why you guys ended up writing "God Save the Queen." Yeah, which was originally called originally "No Future." Called no Future. Um, but it was almost like the papers put us on the front page to kind of, you know, they've all got vested interests with yeah. the government and stuff to take everybody's minds off of what was really going on which yeah it's, it's it's typical you see that it still continues today in so many places oh yeah, yeah so yeah. so you were on the original spunk album and you wrote which, a bunch of those songs and uh there's even yeah, uh, i mean some are co-writes you know like, yeah as far as i'm concerned anarchy's my music and john's lyric god save the queen which was originally no future is like my guitar riff you know which steve played really well but it was yeah. my idea john's lyric pretty vacant is my song I wrote yeah that, you know 
Yeah. But then on the album, Steve wrote like No Feelings and The Lazy Side. And you wrote a submission though to a genre. Right? That was me and him. Stephen Paul didn't turn up for a rehearsal one day. It was kind of funny. And yeah. He said, "Where's everybody?" I thought, "I don't know." He said, "Do you see Malcolm?" And he said, "Yeah." And he said, well, "What's he got to say for himself?" And he said, "Oh, he's got an idea. We should write this song about submission." Yeah. And John went, "What? Like all kind of dominatrixes and things like that?" And I said, <laughs> "Yeah." And he went. Mm, uh, he said, how about a submarine mission? So the song's really about taking the mickey out of Malcolm. So we, yeah. And because Stephen Paul hadn't turned up, we sat and wrote the words, and then I went, went home and wrote some calls, and next time they did turn up, I said, well, we got this song. You know. it, it's, an ama- it's amazing. Yeah, so I kind of put some musical tune things. It, it was John's lyrics and the Stephen Paul sound. And you, like, you know, co-writing credit on, I guess... Uh, well, it was it, decided it was all going to go four ways, you know, so yeah. I'd get paid for stuff that I didn't necessarily write. Yeah, which was that, which was cool at that time because of, of all the songs. And then they did "Holiday in the Sun" and "Bodies" afterward. And um, "Holidays in the Sun" was it was like basically the riffer in the city too by the Jam, which everybody yeah. always says they like nicked yeah. it from Paul. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of a thing. Well, I know that later on when Sid was in the band, he tried to take the Mickey out of Weller. Yeah, because of that. And yeah, Weller was having none of it, and, yeah. and Weller putting him in, in hospital for a night. Yeah. Oh, who did he do? Who he did it to Sid? Yeah. Uh, tell me Sid, this. Sid, well, I wasn't there, but. but Sid was being risey to Paul about it, but he should have kept his mouth shut. So Paul punched him out. Yeah, that's good. Paul well, Paul's that's a delicious. big guy, you know. Paul's, a, you know, yeah, he's a, he's yeah. one of those guys. He's a big guy, and you can tell just by the way he performs. Yeah. He's a no bullshit guy. He'll yeah, fight exactly. almost like the way with and Jack he, White because Jack's knocked a couple people out. Right, you, know? There you, go. you know, they, <laughs> Paul was in the right because they. I mean, this is after my tenure, and they yeah. nicked his riffs. So. Yeah. Which is an amazing yeah, story. When you fair do Fair do is right, absolutely. Now, all right, then you ended up uh, forming the Rich Kids. Was, did it blow your mind when you saw your song, God Save the Queen, go to number one and then get banned at that time? Because it was, I love the footage where they go, they they wouldn't even name the song on the charts because it was. Yeah, it's <laughs> just, just stupid, really. Yeah, really, yeah, it was like number one, but like, we cannot tell you the number one song this week because it has been deemed offensive by the British censors. <laughs> But everybody queen. knew, right? and God, it's called God Save the Queen. What's wrong with putting God Save the Queen up? And the, yeah. It's so stupid. Yeah, it was unbelievable. So there were so many ridiculous things going on at the time. But, you know, by then, <laughs> I, I kind of got a bit sort of fed up with what, what went down, and I was getting involved with this Rich Kids band that I had, which I kind of got approached by EMI before. I mean, it's funny, as a young kid, I, you know, I was kind of 20 years old then, and we were signed to EMI when we were still signed to EMI before we got um, did, got the elbow. And did you co-write that too, or was that something that's what EMI? Yeah, yeah, that's a co-write one. Although it was yeah. mainly Steve's idea, but yeah. we sort of changed it around a bit. But when I was still in the band, this guy Mike Thorne, who was the A and R guy at um, EMI at the time, who effectively signed us, and then went on became a record producer. He produced Tainted Love by Soft Cell, and he, he lives right here in the West Village. I'm staying at his place. Are you serious? He's yeah, a great guy. He's a great guy. He's he's a love, great, yeah. I love Mike, man. Yeah, he's good people. He's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. But he said to me, he said, look, let's go out for a curry. And he said to me, well, look, you know, us at EMI know that there's a problem in the band, and us at EMI know that maybe you're one of the main tunesmiths in the band. But um, we hope you sort it out. But if you don't, we'd be more than interested in anything that you come up with. You know, I'm 20 years old, and I'm thinking, oh, and I'm getting all this kind of rubbish from John. Yeah. You know, so it kind of turned my mind a little bit. And I didn't rush to sign to EMO, although we did in the end. But I thought, well, if they're interested, other record companies would be. And that's when I started putting the Rich Kids thing together. And you started writing, which is great, because then you circle back to Midjour, who was the first you asked. Well, then what happened? We tried it out practically every punk singer in London. 
Who who else tried out for the position? Well, I just love nobody that. that you would really know. You know, <laughs> people in. I, I did try and get hold of, of um, Paul actually at one stage, but his jam thing was already going. Yeah. Was, what about like guys from? Well, Paul asked me to join the jam. Really? Yeah, and I was going to possibly play second guitar, that, and it was fu it's funny. I went down this club called the Roxy, and uh, Rick Butler and. Um, and then uh, Bruce Fox. Bruce Foxen come up to me and they said, "You're going to come and join with us." I said, "Well, we're over playing." They said, "Oh, great! Will you wear a suit?" And I said, "Yeah, I'll wear a suit." And, I, and they said, "What like ours?" And I said, "What from Carnaby Cavern, which was like this really naff place yeah. in London that made clothes?" And they said, "Yeah." I said, "You must be bloody joking." And that was the end of it. So really <laughs> well, because you would put on the suits at that point in time. Because on those first couple albums, they wore the suits, you know, yeah, yeah. which is amazing. Modern world and in the city. I wasn't going to have a suit like that. But. It's, it's, so anyway, we never even had a play in the end. But you know, I tried out all different people, and I was kind of, I had this record deal hanging there, and then sort of in desperate, not desperation, we had this rehearsal in, right in the middle of town, but this yeah. place where the Stones used to play, and we had a showcase coming up, and we had this guy who looked great, and it was cool, and then we went to this new rehearsal place where the PA was better, and I heard him sing properly for the first time, and... He was awful. He wasn't <laughs> awful, but he just he didn't cut it in the way that I wanted. And I was like, oh, what am I going to do? And I wandered out into Leicester Square, which is a bit like being in Times Square where we are now. Went in a record store, just kind of flicking through the racks, and I found this slick record. And they'd been and gone by then. And I thought, I wonder what this guy's doing. So I called up EMI and I said, can you get hold of this guy? Mid-your. And he came down. <laughs> and Mid-your had, had a great voice, you know. Really great voice. And it was... Because uh, was... I wanted somebody who could carry... You know, it would have been easy for me to go and form, like, a second division Sex Pistols, which I didn't want to do. I wanted to try and do something else. I didn't want somebody who could carry a tune well and just do something different. And around about that time, um, you know, Bowie had made those four albums, you know, Lust for Life, The Idiot, uh, Low, and Heroes. And we would listen to that all the time. And that's kind of what influenced the rich kids. Plus, Midge had this sort of 60s sensibility the same as what I did so somehow it's all it all you know, was we successful at it that's what was going on and we had this great guitarist Steve New who to me was he passed like, away recently he right? passed away about two years ago yeah. and, and Rusty Egan was in the band who ended up becoming a big part of the new romantic scene right? well yeah and then that's what split the band up in the end that me and Midge wanted to become new romantics in fact they started it they really whereas me and Steve wanted to rock and roll still yeah. and those guys ended up Midge being he ended up being the second singer in Ultravox and then you replaced yeah and they John formed Fox. Visage with Steve Strange yeah so the Visage originally was Steve Strange Midge and Rusty two of your guys yeah. that first record's great though you ended up working so with I kind of see the rich kids although we weren't that successful it was quite an influential band it was like a bridge between punk and what came after it I mean it's not Spano Valley, Duran Duran. We play in Birmingham, they'd be in the front row, you know. Yeah. And in fact, they tried the next Steve as a guitarist. At one <laughs> so it all kind of goes round, you know. It really does. I remember, I'll just say, and I think I told you this the other day when we were hanging out here in Times Square for the concert, but I remember the day that I bought that Ghost of Princess and Towers single, which is a title track from the Rich Kids record, at Bleaker Bob's legendary record store in, uh, in New York City on Carmine Street. And so I heard, I heard it playing behind the counter. I'm like, what is that? I, I, I gotta have that. And that great B-side only arsenic, which you still do live, right? Yeah, every now and then. It's, <laughs> it's, it's in the wrong key for me, but we just sing it great. Yeah. In fact, that's my favorite Richard song, Only Arsenic. Yeah. I love the the I love the way that things come so circular. Let, well, let's talk about how you work with legendary Bowie guitarists from the Spiders from Mars, Mick Ronson. Right. Produced that record, and uh, was he because you were such a big fan of those those albums, like Ziggy Aladdin, Sane, and things like that? Uh, how did it happen? Can't, no, it's funny. One, 
We had two guys managing us, a guy called Jerry Hampstead and a guy called Pete Wormsley, and they had a little office, and I was in the office one day. We was thinking about who can we get as a producer, or we got to get a producer. Um, we'd done some demos with Mike Thorne, because yeah. he was still at EMI, which sounded all right. And um, I was sitting in the office, and the phone rang. I answered the phone, and his voice went, here, is Peter there? I thought, hang on, I know that voice from somewhere. And it was Mick Ronson who called up, because he was mates with Pete Wormsley. I said, you Mick Ronson? He said, yeah. He said, you're Glenn, didn't you? I said, how do you know? He said, I've heard about you. And, <laughs> yeah. and I said, we're rehearsing tomorrow, and we're looking for a producer. Do you want to come down? And he went, all right, then. And I said, bring your guitar, and he did. So he brought his guitar, but he never got out, because we went to the pub and got wasted. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but ended up doing the album with us. Yeah. He was such a lovely guy, and he was like real clever Smart musician, guy, I mean. but funny as well. Yeah. We had... We were doing some recording, and um, he said, I wonder how it's going. I said, what do you mean? He said, I wonder how it's going. And I said, well, you know, we've just done the rhythm track for this, and Midge's going to come and do his lead vocal. And when he said, no, not that. I said, what then? He said, i got Orson at 3.30. I wonder how it's going. It's <laughs> 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 funny, dude. Mick was great. I met him uh, when I was a teenager when he was playing with Ian Hunter, and I went sunk backstage. He let me tune his guitar, hang out, and play it a little bit, and the bouncers came back because I was underage to be in the club anyway. And they were like, what are you doing here? And Mick Ronson goes, you know, Hey, leave him alone. He's all right. He's with me. And that was such a nice thing yeah, to do to a kid. Cool guy, yeah. You know, so it was great. And Definitely. I, of course, seeing that he produced your record impressed me too, as a, you know, and you being in the band coming from there. Yeah. And I, I actually, we had a go at doing a couple of other things a bit later on. He was working with a girl called Sandy Dillon, an American girl who was living in London. And he asked me to get involved with that and did some things with her. And then he wanted to form a band. Um, and he was trying to get Paul Rogers and. Simon Kurt, I think it was. Two yeah, guys from free. The bass yeah. player. And I was like, Bad company. Who wants me those guys? It yeah. was just an, sort of an idea and it never happened. But the yeah. very fact that Ronson asked me to do it, I was really honoured. So. The free and bad company guys, you know, because those yeah. guys are great. You know, they're, they're, they're talented too. This is the Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. Tell me about some of the other things you did because you played with other people. Did you do well, some Well, after the Rich Kids thing, the mission. Rusty wanted to become your maintenance. So I broke the band up. You know, there was a couple of things that went down. I walked in one day and there was a brand new synthesizer there, which I hadn't been asked about. And I found out it had come out of my publishing money. <laughs> so, so that was the last straw, really. Yeah, you're like, hey, and I, I said, okay, this ain't working. We'll have to reconsider this. They went off and did their thing. And I'm sitting at home the next day thinking, I don't know what, now, what am I going to do now? Wouldn't it be great if the phone rang? And literally, a minute later, the phone rang. And I picked it up and this guy said, um, he said, hi, is that Glenn? I said, yeah. And he said, well, you don't know me. My name is Peter Davis, but I manage Iggy Pop and Jim's here and would like to have a word with you. Yeah. And they were looking for a bass player. They'd done the New Values album, and the guy who played bass on the album, Jackie Clark, yeah. the black guy, he was going to play second guitar on a tour, and they didn't have a bass player. And this guy, John Giddens, who's like a big promoter now in England, he suggested me. And I went and had a drink with Jim at the, the Athenium hotel in Piccadilly and you and Iggy just hit it off thing, the first time I came to the States I was playing with Iggy Pop you know. so did you play on the record too a soldier no they'd already made the New Values album yeah. so I did the tour for that and then at the end of the tour of the States we, no tour of Europe we cut the soldier album with knocking him down in the city great song yeah that one and yeah. I put a couple of songs yeah. in what else did you, did you write on that with him um, was dog food I need more I need more yeah. I need more um, I'm a conservative yeah 
and a song called Ambition, and which was my song. Yeah. And I was kind of pleased because it was the only time that he'd done somebody else's lyrics, apart from doing a cover of a Bo Diddley song or something. Yeah, exactly. To a mono or something yeah. going back, right? Yeah. 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 You know, so um, that's that's a cool thing. And Iggy's, you know, just one of the greatest Iggy's performers. Iggy, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? But he's more than that. He's more than a performer. I think he's like one of the great American poets. You know? He really is. And New Values was a great record, too, New to Values tour that album. stuff. Great production of James Williamson. Got yeah. Great on board and, you know, Five Foot One. Yeah. The Endless Sea, all that stuff yeah. on there. Great you stuff. All the stuff, yeah. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. So that was that was a fun time for you. So did you leave before Bang came out, which was in Yeah. Yeah. I kind of, um, I kind of wish I kept playing with him really, but there was a guy at Arista in England called Charles Leverson who was that guy, and he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm playing with Iggy. And he'd actually put the money up personally before the deal had been signed for the Soldier album. Wow. Although he knew he was going to get it back. Um, did that but after I turned there he said what are you doing and um, I said well I'm playing with Iggy and he said well are you going to do that all your life I said I haven't really thought about it and again he said well if you come up with something I'll be interested and I thought oh and we got this band of Spectres together so yeah. that's what we did but it didn't kind of it was a good band but yeah. it kind of a couple of things happened that I'm not going to go into but um, I wasn't I'm not the greatest businessman in the world that's more the, the norm than the exception. You know how that goes, because musicians are concentrating on their art and their music. Some yeah, people. I kind of wish I'd play with Iggy a bit more. You know, I'd love yeah. to uh, play with him again. But uh, anyway, there you go. So so ne what was up next So before well, the Philistines? Kind of, but, did you lay low for a while? I laid low for a while. I got a bit frustrated. I did a few things. I ended up playing with Thunders for a while. We went to Japan. and How was that talking with Johnny Thunders? Because I'm sure you met him back when the Heartbreakers first came over. Or, but in or fact, with the Dolls, the first, actually. That's the first time. No, I never. I saw the Dolls. Yeah. In fact, I saw the Dolls with the original drummer. I went to see the Faces at Wembley. Yeah. Didn't know who else was on the bill. Didn't care who was on the bill. Got there, saw the first band, which was an English band called Pink Fairies. Which yeah. Been around forever. At that time, had been and gone, but never quite arrived in the meantime. Yeah. time. Although, was that McFerrin's band? Yeah, no, yeah. It was kind of, and Twink was the drummer, I think. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, it was quite a seminal sort of end of hippie kind of yeah. days, yeah. Um, but the New York Dolls were on in the middle. And I thought, wow, this is something else. And I'd heard about them, because Malcolm McLaren, they played at a place called Bieber's, which was quite a hip place to go to. But I was still pretty young then, you know, I was like yeah. 15, 16, I was kind of too young for that kind and then of Malcolm thing. kind of took them to Japan at one point and had them wearing all kinds of crazy stuff you yeah, know, just... yeah. So, but but that was after that period yeah it. much you later kind of, these things sort of interweave the they do interweave don't they and then Thunders what was the experience like with Johnny was well you? I never met him then yeah. you know and they did the thing and then the dolls did their thing and then and imploded under Malcolm's auspices funny yeah. that yeah um, and then they formed the Heartbreakers, and um, they came over to do the Anarchy tour. So we're going back a bit again. And they're no, talking about how they, how they kind of brought the heroin to the, well, to the scene. Well, yeah, I mean, this is what happened was they arrived from the airport. Yeah. And just in time, because we was doing, like, stage rehearsals. Yeah. So they just came from the airport and got up and did their set. I hadn't met anybody and did their set, and everybody was blown away. Yeah. And then when they finished doing their, like, half-hour set, they came and sat with us in the audience like me and Mick Jones and other people watching him yeah and Nolan come and sit next to me and you know pleased to meet you and I said I've really dug that song he said which one I said Chinese Rocks and he said oh great and so I said what's, the, what's that all about and he looked at me like I was an idiot and said heroin boy yeah and I was like oh alright that's nice but that hadn't been in our our crowd at all. You guys were doing speed and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, and having a drink. You know. Yeah, that's it, yeah. That was about the size of it. Yeah. And they kind of 
and then the next day Nancy Spangen turned up as well yeah so between her and those guys Sid Sid was doomed they got a lot to answer for although they were a great band they got quite a lot to answer for yeah that's for sure crazy crazy stories and you know I but mean, anyway I got on with Johnny and let him get on with what he was getting on with yeah let me get on and, then I got and the songs were fun to do weren't they songs were fun to do and then he called did me you play on the Soul Lone record too at all no, no no that was Stephen Paul yeah yeah, yeah. that's right going back there were so many people on that Phil Linnett was on that <laughs> yeah, record and Chrissy and you know good great record though without question but um yeah, so you did that for a while, you did, and uh, and you did the Philistines. What year did you do the Philistines in? Well, I still do it. It's yeah. like my rolling thing yeah. for what I do back now, in England with what songs I wrote, you know. You did a Rich Kids reunion show, too. Tell me about that how that was. That was about two years ago. Well, Steve New got diagnosed with cancer, yeah. and he was getting worse, and Midge heard about it, and I was thinking of trying to do something, I didn't know quite what, and Midge called me up out of the blue, and I hadn't spoken to Midge for a long, long time, and he said, can we do some kind of testimonial for him? Which is what we did. We got a gig together, yeah. So it was a one off reform rich kids thing. We asked a few other people to kind of. Now, did Mick Jones come down Mick from the Jones clash? Mick with his band Carbon Silicon with Tony yeah. James in it. And then Gary Kemp from Spando Valley got up and Vivian Albertine and. Um, yeah. Uh, TV Smith played. Uh, from the adverts? It was like a really, really great night. And Steve mm. was still hanging in there then and he played and it, it was great, but he, he only lasted about two months. Oh, that's sad. You know. He, you know, he was up to his eyeballs in chemotherapy and stuff yeah. but he had so much yeah he's only a scrawny little bloke anyway but he had yeah. so much kind of um determination and, and courage about it it was really quite humbling you know yeah let's see that and you guys just just i'm glad a lot of friends turned up as well and you yeah. guys did the yeah, show it was a good night and we raised some money for his his family i mean he never done that well yeah but he was a great guitarist yeah, he really was with you. How was Midge doing? He's, he's talked to Midge yourself. I've seen him once in a very blue moon, but I've heard he's just done a new Ultravox album, so that yeah. should be interesting. Yeah, absolutely. My friend said it was really good. i got to pick it up. Now, let's talk about the reunion shows and how they came about with the Pistols. You got the phone call. Um, who well, reached no, out to you? I didn't really get a phone call. In 95, there's a yeah. friend of mine, a guy called Calvin Hayes. He was Mickey Moson, and he was like a rich kid's fan. So Mickey Most, of course, for people listening, is great English producer from the sixties. Did a lot of Donovan stuff, Hermits, Hermits, yeah, I mean, the animals, the animals. Inside. Yeah, I mean, I mean just he was like the English um, Phil Spector. Always, yeah, you know. yeah, he was great. Um, but anyway, I was just mates with his son, and he was living in LA, and he said, "I found this singer. Do you, you know, do you want to come over? Well, let's see if it works out." So I wasn't doing anything. Me and Steve went over to play with this guy and he didn't great guy but didn't quite work out so I had a lot of time on my hands he said well what are you going to do and I said well I'm not seeing Steve and I haven't spoken to Steve for a long time and we're talking about Steve Jones from the Pistols of course and Calvin got a number and he said call him up and I went oh, I'll call him tomorrow and the next day he said you called him and I said I'll call him tomorrow and this went on for about a week and I called him and, and Steve said oh, I heard you was in town do you want to come meet up and as soon as I met him he said let's go and see John I was like oh this is going to be interesting but it was fine yeah. And then as soon as we got to John's, Steve said, let's call up Paul, who was in England. Yeah. Paul wasn't in, so we left a message. And we went out to eat, and Paul called back, and we was out. But it kind of set a whole train in motion, and come 96, we was turned. Yeah, you got a first so out. I kind of felt I was like the missing link a little bit. 
you know, I didn't make it happen, but if I hadn't bothered, and I could have not bothered calling at all, because a lot of stuff would have been said over the years, yeah. know, which was a bit I know. below the belt, really. But the good news is the four of you original members of the Pistols got back together and did that. That was the Filthy Lucre tour, right? Was that the first yeah. one? Yeah. Which was a live document. It was a that. big tour. I mean, we did the best part of 100 dates all around the world. You know, big shows. You know, it's funny. I had a conversation with Steve Jones, um, and I said to him, I go, oh, you guys ever think of recording an agency? You know, because we have really honest conversations like you and I would do it here. And Steve looks at me and goes, Nobody wants to hear new music from us. They want to hear the bollocks, and that's what you know. Well, like, that's true, yeah. and it was like he was like, "Why?" Yeah. Because all these people do these reunions, things that people just want to get to the songs that they love, and it was, so it was a very real. Well, I think, I think definitely now. But if there was ever a time to have a go at writing something new, it would have been back in '96, and that's yeah. 15 years ago. Is it 15? What's the date now? 2000. Yeah. Yeah. 2017, 17 years. Isn't that unbelievable when you think about it? it? And Johnny's mellowed out so much now and has turned it. Turned oh, I won't say he's mellowed. Well, mellowed may be the wrong word. Yeah. But I thought it was funny. Well, I was interviewing once, uh, Glenn, and I was talking about the riot that Public Image caused at the Ritz here in New York. And he goes, oh, but it was a friendly riot. I said, friendly riot? I go, one of my friends got her teeth knocked out. Uh, Vincent D'Onofrio, you know, the actor from Full Metal Jacket and Law and Order Criminal right. Intent, was my friend. He was a bouncer there at the time. His friend was another bouncer. got stabbed. It was like wow. a crazy ass riot. Well, friendly riot. Friendly riot. <laughs> yeah, it was a friendly stabbing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. It, was, it was kind of funny, though, because we played here. Uh, yeah. It was in 96. Yeah. We did the Roseland Ballroom yeah. a couple of nights there, yeah. which was cool. And um, it was kind of funny because on my side of the stage, you know, the, the on stage mixing desk was on Steve's side that particular night. On yeah. my side of the stage, there was supposed to be nobody there. And I was playing away, and just behind the PA stage, I thought there's a couple of people there. Who's that? Like, nah, there's not anybody there. And then we finished the number. I went out to look, and there was two people there. It was Uma Thurman and Dennis Hopper. Yeah. Standing in the shadow. I was like, wow, you know, I've kind of arrived. <laughs> to see you guys play, and that's well, great. I think those mates with Steve, you know. But yeah. That's cool. You that, know, yeah, I'm in New York now. That's fantastic. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, those shows have been, were great. And, uh, I, you know, I never knew until you told me that Did You Know Wrong really, even though it's credited. Well, that was one of the very first songs, and that was come about when Wally was still in the band. Yeah. In fact, there was an original song. Paul thinks it's di different, but there was a song called Scarface, and the lyrics were written by Bolly's dad. Yeah. Really? Yeah, Bolly's a long dad. time before John was in the band. And, <laughs> you know, you get a song, and it moves on, and it moves on. And, and it becomes on, something else. It becomes something else. Yeah. But the very original riff was That's just Bolly's thing. And he, uh, he, end, he ended up getting a credit in the end, which yeah. I think was about right, really, to be honest. Yeah, it is always good. People that are about right. Well, I think you should get paid for what you do. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Enough, you know, there's no argument. Hey, I always say that about everything. I say when people say they want things for free, I, like music free, I'm like, well... If someone paints your house, you can do you expect that for free? Yeah, do you, exactly. Do yeah. you expect your groceries for free? I think you know there's a there's a certain amount that artists should be re rewarded and paid uh, for for the stuff that they create. That's what I've always felt. Um, and uh, so let's talk about some of the other things you've done. I remember we met for the first time with your band Slinky Vagabond. You know, I, for many years I hosted the Joey Ramon Cancer Benefit because Joey and I became good, really, really good friends uh, in his you know last ten or twelve years alive. Right. Um, I got to ask you because I know you played that thing, but were you at, the, at that first Ramon show in London when they came and played? That, that yeah, game? we went to Sam. I think it was at the Roundhouse. Yeah, that was the one that's pretty famous that you and the guys from the Clash and all the other bands were there, yeah. right? We went to check it. See, because what had happened back then, you know, when we was getting it together, um, we was hip to some of these American bands because Malcolm had brought back all these flyers from the clubs. You know, like um, the Heartbreakers when Richard Hell was still in it. Yeah. And I remember one of the flyers was, or it was like a set list. 
yeah, and it was with, with their the, hand the, on their heart with all with all the, like the, the blood yeah, tripping down yeah that yeah. one but and also the set list had like blank generation and um, the arms of venus de milo and i was at yeah. art school at the time and I, was, I thought that's kind of funny because the, the statue of Venus de Milo doesn't have any arms, you know. <laughs> so it was all kind of arty, and it was this kind of negative kind of, yeah. or I perceived it as being negative, and that blank generation thing kind of got me going. That sort of led to Freddie Bacon. Yeah. But sort of subsequently, I found that Richard L. meant blank generation, oh, we're an open page, we can do what we like. But yeah. being in London, we're a bit more cynical about yeah. things. Yeah, you know? well, especially that period of time when you look back, like you said, at what was going on in the mid-70s yeah. in England. It was, you said, yeah. but dismal. So, so we was aware of this kind of thing going on, but nobody had made any records back then. So we hadn't heard them. You know, and people say, oh, you copied us, and you, nobody made any records until the Ramones came over for the first time. It was the first time we'd heard them properly, and it was uncanny how... On the same page musically, bands were both sides of the Atlantic. Yeah. And it was almost like they got fed up with the same set of influences and inspired by the same things as we did, you know, in tandem. Yeah. In the same time. Yeah. So it it was kind of cool that it was on the same page. But it was also taught with a little bit of correspondence about getting Richard Hell over when we were still looking for a singer. Yeah, wow. Wow. And I think to this day, he kind of feels that rotten nicked his look yeah but John this was before John was in the band he no, he'd never heard of him you know yeah and he looked that way weird. anyway yeah. right? so so there are things going on in two major cities London yeah. and New York you know and it, things it's amazing how things will do that and it has a lot to do with the time and rebellion and it's incredible so Slinky Vagabond you did those gigs I love that you're um, well that was kind of like a little project thing there's a mate of mine called Keenan Dufty who's a fashion designer and sings pretty good singer but he called me up and said um you know, I'm doing because he'd done some clothes for the Pistols when we we was touring, and he said he was going to go in and make a record with this guy who's approached him. What should he do? And I said, Well, who's the guy? And he said, Al Slick. And I said, Well, don't be stupid, do it. You know. Yeah. And he said, Well, would you play some bass on it if we send the the tapes over? I said, Yeah, I'd love to do that. And I said, Have you got drumming? And he said, Well, I'm mates with Clem Burt. He said he'll do it. And I'd known Clem for thirty years, but never played with him. Yeah. And I said, well, look, book a studio. I'll just come over and do it. So it was like a project. And then we got asked to do the Ramones thing. We that, did that. But nobody was ever in the same place. That the, you know, Clem was touring with Blondie. Did you know Clem from those early Blondie days when they first hit? In the, yeah. yeah. I mean, I've known Clem since back. Great back, guy, Clem. Back, great, great guy. Yeah. And now you're playing with him again as well. You guys yeah, are doing this, this. Tell me about the new thing that you're doing. It's a fun kind of thing. The International, International Swingers. Swingers. I'm not sure about the name myself, but <laughs> basically we're a glorified covers band, but we do our, we cover our own songs. And it's great to be playing a couple of Blondie songs with Clem from Blondie, you know, yeah. and hopefully he feels the same about doing some of my stuff. And you've got Gary Twin, who's the, mainly the lead singer, although I sing a song and, and Clem sings the romantic song. Yeah. You know, um, what I like about you. Yeah, because the drummer did the romantics too, so it makes yeah, sense. Yeah, so it's kind of fun. I like that you cover on your EP, you guys do, uh, and James Stevenson, we should mention as well, who, we who played in James. Gen X and played in Gene Loves Jezebel. And he plays in the Philistines as well back yeah. in England, yeah. He's a great guitarist and, and a good guy. Uh, he, um, You guys, I love that you guys do Friday on My Mind, well, the we Easy went, Beats. we went to Australia before Christmas. Gary yeah. was in a band... When punk was going on in England, he was living in Australia as an English guy, but he, he moved over there. And he had a number one record. He was in a band called Supernaut, and they had this song called I Like It Both Ways, which was about one of the guys in the band who couldn't make up his mind if he was gay or not. Like, yeah. I Like It Both Ways. And it went, he got banned, and it went to number one. <laughs> Sounds familiar, doesn't yeah. it? And he, got, he goes back and does a tour every few years, but he wanted to do something different. So again, he asked me and Clem and James if we'd go and do it. Yeah. 
So he was going there, and I said, "Well, why don't I've always dug fire in my mind, and it's by an Australian band." Yeah. Why don't we do that one? And so what a great did. song it it's is! A great song. That Easy Beat song is like on fire. It's so, and you know how many people? I mean, a lot of people know you know, but a lot of people don't realize that um, you know uh, Van Den Young. The, the, young, the Young was the older brother of uh, Malcolm and Angus Young of ACDC and yeah, produced those so early it records. Yeah, kind of goes, goes round. And when I was there, <laughs> I was sitting outside this, this cafe and got talking to these guys who I didn't realize were from a band called The Angels. And when Mick Ronson, Angel City. In America, they called them Angel City, remember? Oh, I didn't realize that, yeah. but they were the Angels over there. And when Mick Ronson died, there was a big benefit concert for him. And Maggie, who's a friend of mine, his sister, Said, well, we do this song by the Angels called, um, what's it bloody called? It's called I like No Secrets, but that was that, or yeah, it was something I else. What it's called now. But they're great. But anyway, so I was talking <laughs> to him, and he's got a great riff, and he said, well, I started off nicking that from Pretty Vacant. So it, everything <laughs> kind of goes round. <laughs> yeah, oh, what a walk a long line. It's a yeah, long well, yeah, line. Yeah. Down, down. They were a good band. They were huge in Australia, but they, because there was a band here called Angel who were on Casablanca, who were like supposed to be the good kiss because they were all white. Right. Um, they the couldn't kids. use the name, <laughs> meaning like, you know, Kiss yeah. were the evil. They were like, so Casablanca had Angel and they had Kiss. Uh, they couldn't use the name Ang the Angels here in America. And also the Angels have been used for, for the girl group back in the day. So they changed it to Angel City in America. Right, okay. And uh, they had like a minor rocket called No Secrets that I loved as a kid. But um, crazy. Yeah, but it's just weird. Like, wherever <laughs> you are in the world, all these things. It's true. Intertwine again. We're so happy to have you here, Glenn. So what's what's going to be next? I mean, I know you're going to head back to England, but... Um, oh, I've got some Philistine shows when I'm over there. Um, hopefully, I'm going to be back doing this. Doing this, come over yeah, to the States. Stuff and I do a few acoustic shows. I mean, the main reason I come to New York originally this time, I got asked because of the CBGB's festival, I just did a little acoustic show at the living room. So I've got some of them going on. But it was more of an excuse to come to New York because I came from California. Yeah. So I'm, you know, I'm just beginning to think about writing a new album. But what it's for, whether it's for me or yeah, I don't know. But I just like doing a bit of this and a bit of that. And yeah. I mean, like last year, I was playing with the Faces. That was kind of cool. Let's we we forgot to even discuss that. You well, played with the Faces. What are your you know, favorite bands? Yeah. yeah, it's my all-time favorite band. You know, so here you are, and you played with them. And Mick Hucknall was doing Rod Stewart stuff, which he does amazing, by the way. He yeah, does he's great. A, you know, he's phenomenal. I mean, he's, he's not Rod Stewart, and he says he's not Rod Stewart, but he's a fan. To me, the Faces were always a great rock band with a great soul singer. Yeah. And when I was doing it, and Mick was doing it, it still kind of was, and it was. A real privilege to be. I mean, I think Ronnie Wood's a not lost, but he doesn't sound like Ronnie Wood in the Rolling Stones. He needs to be the only guitarist in the band in my book. Yeah. And when I started playing with him, and to see him get back on the same place playing with Ian McGlagan, who's a fantastic keyboard player, and the connection now, and how I got the gig was because Mac played on the Rich Kids track and did a tour of us, and I got involved with him, and then I lost touch, and then we spoke again, and he said. I said, what are you doing? And he said, I'd really like to get the faces back together. And Ronnie Lane had passed away by then. I said, well, you're going to need a bass player, aren't you? And he said, yeah. And I said, I know that you know that. I know that you know <laughs> yeah. that I'm the right And good, your height works for that too, right? Because well, you're I'm, a little taller than them, right? I think I'm a how much, taller than How much? Like five inches or six? Uh, Maybe more? I think <laughs> I won't call the small faces for nothing. <laughs> yeah, those guys were, yeah, they, yeah. It was funny, you know, Mac has told me, Ian McLagan, how when he first joined the band, he didn't know, like the guys didn't know what he looked like, and he got there and realized they were all the same height. He was like, it worked well, out he, perfect. He told me that he was at home <laughs> once when Jimmy Winston was still in the band. Yeah. And he was doing something, and his dad was watching the telly, and he went, Mac's dad, and he said, 
hey mate come and watch these guys on the telly they look just like you <laughs> and then not long after that he got a phone call yeah come and do them but he, it's amazing when you look back at it I, lo I just love that story about you know Sharon Osborne's and dad who was you know the, pretty much the gangster manager over there back in the time yeah, Don, Don Arden, Arden yeah. and uh, I love a story where like you know because the band didn't get wasn't getting paid and when the parents of the small faces who became the faces of course when they went and asked uh, Don about it he did, he kind of like took their attention by going your sons are on drugs yeah. so they freak out and stop thinking about the money <laughs> Kind of tactic. But the funny thing was when, when we when we was playing last year, we decided to do a couple of small faces songs, and we did. Oh, you with rich kids, you mean? Or no, no with we, we were the faces. Oh yeah, yeah. So it was, we were doing a faces set, but we thought, oh, for an encore, we which ones did you do? What well, you going to do about it? Well, we, no, we did all or nothing, which is quite an easy one to learn. Yeah. We did Tin Soldier. Yeah, right, which is quite a hard song. Yeah, not hard, but it's complicated kind of thing, and we got it together. Mick Hucknell sang it fantastically, but the first time we played it, we did the Cornbury Festival in England, and as we was coming off stage, Ronnie Wood turned around to me and goes, yeah, Glenn, how's about that? Me and you played two Small Faces songs with two of the original Small Faces, and he weren't like taking the mickey, he was such an enthusiastic guy. Ronnie he, Wood, he, yeah. he really thought it was a privilege to do it himself, you know. Yeah, so that's was, so cool that you Yeah, it was really cool. And it's just good, so good to have you and... Uh, you playing with him and, and uh, Mac. Mac's such a great guy, isn't he? He's great. I met him on a plane, and we just, we obviously, you know, he and I can both talk. You can both talk, yeah. <laughs> so we, we were like... He talks for us, and you can talk for New York. <laughs> it's amazing. But um, I just want to say how great it is you got to play with him again. So do you think you'll do some more small faces uh, date or faces dates? I don't know. It's down to them, you know. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm the new kid on the block as far as that's concerned. I'd love to. Yeah. And I think it kind of worked good, but we'll have to see. You know. Any any talk about and it? if it doesn't happen, I've got to play with my all-time favorite band, which is a great thing. I got paid for it. Yeah, which is phenomenal. And then uh, what about a Pistols reunion? Is there any talk? I mean, Johnny obviously has, has done some public. Well, he's doing stuff. his public image thing at the moment. I, I don't know. You know, if if it happens, it happens. I actually think they should pay us hash money to not do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic Glenn it was so great to have you here today on the show pleasure coming in thanks for having we'll, yeah, we'll have you back again and by the way is your is your autobiography I Was a Teenage Sex Pistol is it going to be in print again soon it's I, th I think it's still available somewhere on Amazon but I'm actually working on having it coming out again and it's going to be like in an ebook e format maybe later on this year or early next so yeah look out for it yeah we'll definitely look out for that so uh, for everyone listening I Was a Teenage Sex Pistol uh Glenn's autobiography will be available. We're looking at well, it's about my time in the band. Yeah, there's other stuff that yeah, I'll I'll keep to myself. Yeah, well, so you can so you can read about it. Glenn, thanks for coming by. It's such much, a pleasure man. to have you. Uh, love all the stuff, all the music, and all the influence that you had on so many I'll people. I give it a go. Yeah, absolutely. This has been the Hivecast. It's Matt Pinfield. Thanks so much for listening. This has been the Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. For all things music, news, interviews, live events, and more, go to mtvhive.com.